2: Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast set in the grim cyberpunk future of 2021. Danny Mnuran is a man with an implant in his brain that can carry a whopping 80 gigabytes of data. This means he can make a living as a digital courier, but also leaves him with no childhood memories, which obviously absolutely sucks. To pay for an operation to get his memories back, Danny accepts one last job to deliver a large package of information to Beijing. Unfortunately, the information exceeds his memory capacity, and he risks brain damage taking it on. Also, pretty soon he finds himself on the run from the Unakuza and the evil pharmacological company, Fnomarmacomnom. Is that what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 1995 film Johnny Mnemonic, starring Keanu Reeves. It's actually just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, my sniper panunk
0: panodcasting panal, Danny Minoran. Hello. On this week, it's a Danny review sandwich where I'm the filling, and Sam is the lovely bread enveloping me. First off, Sam proves that he is your honky when it comes to reviews of I Am Not Your Negro, the acclaimed documentary about writer slash civil rights activist slash general badass James Baldwin. Then I review Neruda, the latest film from Chilean auteur Pablo Lorraine, whose subject matter does not lend itself to an easy joke, so I haven't made one up. And then Sam reviews the live-action adaptation of Ghost in the Shell, which I like to think of as the unofficial sequel to Lost in Translation, where Bill Murray never came back to Tokyo and things spiralled on from there. Plus, we wonder if Liam Neeson has the particular set of skills required to play Philip Marlowe, and whether Joss Whedon is the man to tell the DC Extended Universe to lighten the fuck up. All of this should leave me just enough time to form my latest impression. Cleen Eastwood, returning home after a long holiday, to find Barack Obama actually sitting in his chair. Uh, uh, why are, you, why are you doing in my, in my chair? Get out of my chair. Back. Films, 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 Lots of
2: films, 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 films. Ooh. Good films, bad films,
0: fun films, sad films, films we love. Weird films, one, Montreux films, old films, new films, some John Blue films. Films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films, short films, six hours long. We've got films up to your gills, with films, films, films. Liam Neeson he's an old man who likes to punch people and sometimes act and he's found another role which combines those two skills interesting news story broke this week that he has signed on to play the iconic detective Philip Marlowe probably the most iconic detective after Sherlock Holmes probably obviously created by Raymond Chandler and was in a string of movies probably most iconically played by Humphrey Bogart but he's been played by Robert Mitchum and Elliot Gould. But it's been a while since there's been a Marlowe take in the cinema. And this new project is simply called Marlowe. And it's from a spec script written by the departed screenwriter William Monaghan. Based on the 2014, I guess, authorised one of those After the Is Dead novels. By a guy called Benjamin Black. And uh, yeah, old man Neeson playing old man Marlowe. It's interesting that they're, they're, they're adapting it from a recent story rather
2: than from one of the original stories.
0: Well, has he, is he older than Marlowe was in the final...
2: Well, that's, that was my first thought, is that he's getting pretty... He's getting on a bit if he's being played by Liam Neeson. And also, Liam Neeson's manner is rather different to the Philip Marlowe character.
0: And he can't do an American accent.
2: No, he can't really do an American accent. But having, having said that, the way that Philip Marlowe has been portrayed on screen is a bit different to how he is in the novels. Well, it actually depends on the adaptation certainly the Humphrey Bogart version is more of a cool dude yeah. who is just like a kind of hard guy who faces people down doesn't take any shit whereas in the in the novels he kind of is that but he's also a bit of a loser and yeah, someone just who just drinking guy. he doesn't he's he obviously doesn't much care for himself and then that for that reason doesn't care about his own well-being and so he doesn't mind getting beaten up by cops and gangsters and stuff and that's you know that kind of uh detached cool that's where it sort of comes from and the fact that he's a drunkard yeah and, whereas
0: like Liam Neeson's screen persona is now is like well Clint Eastwood or something he's yeah sort of there's that yeah guy. I mean
2: he's got this kind of sad eyes but it's this it's a different kind of thing he doesn't have that sort of loose air that Philip Marlowe has so yeah. I don't know I mean it depends maybe it depends on what the novel is like I don't know the first thing about it there's a little synopsis here of what uh, what the story is going to be in the, in the early 1950s, Marlowe is as restless and lonely as ever, and business is a little slow. Classic.
0: Classic. Classic. Classic opening.
2: Then a new client has shown in. It's only getting more classic. Oh, my God. Blonde, beautiful, and expensively dressed. Couldn't get more classic. She wants Marlowe to find her former lover.
0: It just got more classic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Almost immediately, Marlowe discovers that the man's disappearance is merely the first in a series of bewildering events, and soon he is tangling with one of Bay City's richest and most ruthless families. I mean...
0: This is so it's, Marlowe. It's,
2: well, it just sounds like it was cribbed from a bunch of the elements of classic Marlowe stories. Well, this is probably the problem does, facing... Does any... doesn't thrill me with, you know, anticipation, yeah. to be honest. I
0: think there's two things in that. I read a really good article, which I can't remember who wrote it, which is basically saying that all detectives nowadays are either Sherlock Holmes or Philip Marlowe. They're either, like, a bit OCD and weird and have no social skills, or they're really messed up, they drink heavily, they've got a drug problem, something or other. So, like... Even though there hasn't been a Marlowe adaptation, the Marlowe character has become something of an archetype. Yeah, absolutely. It's been completely filtered through pop culture. And secondly, the betrayal, particularly Humphrey Bogart's betrayal, has been so parodied that film noir, it's hard to do it now. It's so specific to the time. Yeah, and it's such a. without it seeming kitsch.
2: There's such a specific collection of traits of film noir as well that I, I think it's hard to do in a way that doesn't feel like a pastiche. And uh, the part of the power of the original stories is that it just is the original. You can take it at face value and not constantly think that it's making fun of itself, which most of the subsequent incarnations have tended to feel like. So if they're going down the really, really straight noir route where it's gonna start with some beautiful blonde walking in as some like trumpet music plays whatever on a hot (laughs) you know los angeles afternoon i
0: was going to a long stretch of doing nothing
2: yeah uh, it's just gonna it's just gonna come off as dumb and because there's real dramatic richness to those stories so it would be a shame because it's not just some fun nonsense i think there's some real poetry in some of the Marlowe stuff and really nihilistic and really nihilistic yeah Especially the 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 novel the long goodbye as well so really um is quite a sort of touching melancholic enigmatic story and i don't i feel like that has not really been drawn out in any of um yeah. in any adaptation that we've seen and there's like potential there so if they just make some kind of you know sin city type thing yeah, yeah exactly it would just be a bit silly but we'll see i mean the thing is with liam neeson you don't know because there would have a time where you'd be like well if it's liam neeson in the project it's going to be good And now that is
0: impossible to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Maybe dilute his brand slightly. Speaking of Liam Neeson, wasn't he in Batman Begins?
2: Yes, he was, Danny. He was in Batman Begins.
0: I think they should begin the Batman
2: franchise again. I agree. (laughs) That would be an excellent idea. And who do you think would be a good person to help helm such a rejuvenation of the Bat franchise?
0: Why? I think Joss Whedon would be the man to do it. Whedon,
2: yes. What an extraordinary suggestion. But I don't. I wouldn't have Whedon for Batman.
0: No, he's not, not for Bat. Not for Batman. Man
2: for Bat, yes, but not man.
0: Maybe Batgirl?
2: Girl. Girl. Why? Well, that's just
0: a ticket. He's perfect for Bat Girl. So. <laughs> oh, 112 episodes in!
2: Incredible. The, the report we Slick have Slick seamless. <laughs> so, just Whedon has been hired by DC, who are continuing to find around, working out what exactly they're going to do with their massive money-printing properties, and they want him to write, direct, and produce a Batgirl movie. So, it's it's interesting in a few ways. I guess it kind of makes sense in terms of its. Having a, I mean, I don't know much about the Batgirl character, but as far as I understand, it's a kind of detective. She is you know, the daughter small.
0: of Commissioner Gordon. She's Barbara Gordon. Right, yeah. That's all I know.
2: <laughs> well, she's, I mean, she's like the daughter of a detective who becomes another superhero kind of detective, yeah. whatever. We'll uh, but you can, I can very easily imagine the kind of Just type take on this. And. Although he certainly has his critics in in terms of the way uh, he does female characters and they sort of tend to fall into set kind of archetypes. Um, But it would make for a welcome departure from the tone of the DC universe so far. Yeah, absolutely. And he's also proven that he can just make a functional film that works from (laughs) beginning to end in a a way that Zack Snyder cannot, cannot do. And he's earned the freedom to actually do that in a way that David Ayer hadn't when he took on... Suicide Squad so it sort of would be astonishing if they given his success with the Avengers it would be incredible if DC was constantly up in his grill and having his movie recut by some promo trailer company.
0: Yeah well this is what I was thinking of when I heard this news story is that he was quite vocal about Marvel messing with Avengers 2 and the producers clashing with uh, they had to cut scenes. That's why the whole four section makes sense. Doesn't no make any sense, sense because yeah. Because they were cutting it down. And although I think they left on sort of um, good terms, he was quite open about the fact that it was this struggle between them. But DC, up to this point, have, I don't know how to put it, how they separate themselves from Marvel is that they're like director-focused but they made the mistake of hiring, like, idiots so far to make their films.
2: Or, or, well, or just fucking with them. I mean, I, I didn't, not that I necessarily think David Ayer is great. I haven't really seen his other movies, Well,
0: this but. is what I was saying. is like, because they hired Zack Snyder, to did such a terrible job. It made them revert to this producer model and mess around with David Ayer. That was even worse. It, it was yeah. even <laughs> worse. So I'm worried now is, like, are they going to just be super on the back of Joss Whedon? Or are they going to give him the same creative license they gave Zack snyder was like no we got burned i'm sorry we just cannot let directors do their own thing because we did that twice and it was really really fucked up the whole yeah, but thing they, but
2: they got burned on suicide squad as well you know yeah well, so, you know it's hard to i mean i feel like well, i feel like if that was their plan they wouldn't have hired him i think the thing about joss whedon is that he seems like now he didn't seem like that before the avengers but now he seems like this perfect studio hire and there he's proven that he can do it and and he he will take creative control of it, but won't produce some kind of like yeah, wacky like, out there film that doesn't, that won't please audiences, you know? Yeah,
0: he has a sincere love of the characters. Yeah, well, like, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, he knows how to do stuff that's fun. You know, yeah. like, I can imagine David Ayer making some film that was a passion project, but everyone was like, what is this horrible, gritty, uh, mythical cop film, <laughs> you know? But but if you just give Joss Whedon creative control, he will produce a fun movie.
0: It's true. I don't know, maybe the difference in approach is that. The Marvel formula, because it's so quality controlled. I don't know under that system. Like, can there ever make like a really great movie? Whereas, do you know what I mean? Like, it's almost yeah. like with the turb, If you buy into that, like you kind of roll the dice, and it can either be terrible, like it was with Batman v Superman. But that is one man's vision, or it could be brilliant. So maybe you haven't got the same kind of net safety, but yeah, you might get a better movie out of it.
2: That's true. I mean, although I I think that there's a ceiling on how great a movie Joss Whedon can make. I, I don't know. I'm not, like, a totally, uh, like, oh, complete Whedon S- fanboy. Man
0: was, like, the best movie of 2005.
2: Well, <laughs> well. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's not, like, that amazing, though. It's not, like... I don't I don't, I don't see him as, like, an auto who's going to churn out a classic film that happens to be a superhero movie, but he might make a good and entertaining picture, which would be a new step for DC. Yeah. But we have to see how the Wonder Woman movie turns out.
0: Well, I was going to say, like, my final point on this would be you know, one way DC can beat Marvel is just by having more female-led superhero movies because they're, like, I don't know how many movies in now and they haven't had haven't a had single one. one. Yeah. Like, Captain Marvel's not till like, 2020 or something. Nah. Yeah, I
2: think it's, like, it's either 2018 or 2019. But yeah, I okay. guess. So so it's way f- too far away. They
0: made one about a talking tree before they made one about a woman. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. There's obviously, like, gaps in their plan which DC could capitalize on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's good that they're they, uh, um, raising this prospect.
0: So, yeah i mean i think it's generally it's positive news bring it on bring on batgirl or as batgirl would say i'm a girl and i dress like a bat that's a catchphrase right I, i'm not familiar with the comics i think that is it looks like sam's got a film to review he's just getting ready now Hey Sam, here's a few tips
2: for you that I hope are going to help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shy.
1: Okay, start reviewing now.
2: I'm Not Your Nego, this is a documentary out this Friday, uh, directed by Raoul Pack. And it's based on an unfinished manuscript by James Baldwin, who is a leading intellectual of the American civil rights movement. And uh, he was writing, when he he died, he had an unfinished manuscript for a book called Remember This House, which is going to be a memoir about his own relationships with three civil rights leaders who were all murdered, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. And the film is a, uh, it has a written by James Baldwin credit and it's a kind of documentary about him, but it uses entirely his words. It's kind of clips from his life and also illustrations of his thoughts from his manuscript as read by Samuel R. Jackson, uh, doing an extremely good and moving job. Here's a clip of James Baldwin on The Dick Cavett Show. I didn't know that much about James Baldwin before seeing this movie, but one of the things that it taught me is that he is a total badass on television and in debates, um, and here's a great, eloquent clip of him.
1: If we were white, if we were Irish, if you we were Jewish, if you we were Poles, if we had, in fact, in your mind, a frame of reference, our heroes would be your heroes too. Nat Turner would be a hero for you instead of a threat. Malcolm X might still be alive. And it, you know everyone is very proud of brave little Israel. A state against which I have nothing. No, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I'm not an anti-Semite. But you know, when the Israelis pick up guns, or the Poles, or the Irish, or any white man in the world, says, Give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, word for word, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him.
2: So I thought this was absolutely fantastic. It was really powerful. I found it genuinely a really moving film. It's very reverent of Baldwin but I, it avoids coming off like a kind of hagiography by only using his words. So the authorial voice is his. Right, and yeah. the, it's sort of created in a way that positions the director as secondary. And he's such a good writer and speaker that it's hard to imagine the film being made another way when you come out. Because you wouldn't want to get in the way. I mean, it can really understand why this guy would have been like, I can't write my own script about him, you know, because he's better. So we just use his words. And also because it's a bit like 13th in a way in that it sort of has this focus on the history of civil rights in America and the treatment of black Americans. And it is so the relevance to today is so obvious that it doesn't require complex analysis. It makes its own case for being relevant now. I mean, you just watch it. And everything that is shown on the screen, everything they talk about, is very, very obviously irrelevant to today. Um, It's got an interesting kind of structure. And because it's based on a memoir about other people, but is also a kind of movie about him, it has this kind of somewhat loose feel. And it moves between cultural and historical observations And details about the civil rights leaders and anecdotes about his own life, because he left America for a long time. Then he felt compelled, basically, to return because of the situation there. And it feels somewhat like musing and meandering, but because every everything about it is so invested with passion, that it still feels fiery. It doesn't, even though it's not making a concentrated argument. Whether he's just talking about how he felt returning to America, or if he's talking about where he was when he heard that Martin Luther King had been killed, or whether he's just talking about American culture, it's all very real and direct. So it feels very immediate and strong, even though it's not necessarily constructed in a very clear A to B way. And th- But that kind of like, I don't know if montage is the right word, but... um it's a bit like a, a big board with like all these different ideas kind of stuck right. to it. But it didn't, it, it just, it, it works extremely well because it just feels like you're being taken on this kind of intellectual journey by an incredibly eloquent and smart guy. And you just always want to see what the next thing is that's going to crop up. Um, and they occasionally, it's very, they have there's a lot of very lovingly selected archive footage, including clips from movies uh there's a there's a clip from um the sydney poite film no way out which i've I'd forgotten that i'd seen it and it was kind of exciting it's like a joseph l mankovich movie where he plays a doctor and and that that clip actually feels particularly apposite because it's a scene in which uh he gets attacked by um this like furious white racist guy and the guy is screaming about how his uh, i can't remember exactly how it goes but he's basically saying that his own life is incredibly terrible And when he turns on the TV and the radio, all he hears is about the suffering of black Americans, you know, and it's like (laughs) the the thing is that, um, you know, he's obviously a hysterical racist, but you can so clearly see that narrative of white resentment being played out now in exactly the same way. And all of these, you know, ridiculous alt-right Pepe frog people are exactly the same. You know, they're exactly the same as that guy. It's like, oh, all you, it's all the feminists complaining, all the Black Lives Matter people complaining. But, you know, what about my life? My life also sucks. And, you know, I don't have a movement. So that's why I need...
0: White men's lives matter.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all that kind of thing. And, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, and, and uh, it's all very like. I think this movie is made of a very long period. He made it over years and years and years, and you can see how carefully it's constructed. And he also occasionally throws in more recent archive footage of uh, things like the riots in Ferguson and um, you know and that kind of thing. And it could feel heavy-handed if it wasn't so incredibly apposite that you can you can't really complain about its inclusion because you know it yeah, just yeah of course you know it obviously should be there. Samuel L. Jackson is a, is absolutely fantastic in it. In that he's chosen this particular mode, which is very quiet and rumbly and restrained, and it's interesting because it's you have actual clips of James Baldwin speaking, and it's obvious they don't sound like the same guy. Of course, but he the mode he adopts evokes kind of Baldwin's inner voice, and it's got this kind of ruminative feel to it that just is very captivating, and yeah, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Basically, I. I Even though, you know, politically you may agree entirely with the film before you even step in to see it, it's such a powerful evocation of that era and also an insight into the mind of this guy who is a fascinating figure, incredibly smart, incredibly articulate, says so many things that are, you know, relevant messages that need to be heard now and that haven't been said better since. And it really made me feel like we don't have someone like this now and that there was such a rich atmosphere of these great people around the time of the civil rights movement such articulate powerful speakers and, and thinkers that feel like they don't exist now i mean maybe it's just the lens of history is highlighting these great people and I, you know you i don't appreciate them now but it feels like an absence basically
0: or maybe we are those great thinkers wait a
2: second with film chat is the james baldwin of today <laughs> yes get me on the thought of the day immediately put me on radio Four. Get me in the Oxford Union debating William F. Buckley, Jr., Jr., Jr. <laughs> um, You'd crush him. Crush that guy. Crush that non-existing guy. Yeah, so ba- basically, I, I you know, just seek it out. Go find it. It's out in cinemas on Friday, April the 7th, which will be in the past by the time you're listening to this. And uh, drop your tools. Get out of the workshop, whatever it is you're doing, and go see this film.
0: Okay, I'll do that. now for Danny to review a film he recently saw Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask and jingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to
2: hear his thoughts If he does a
0: rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off Sam, I also saw a film about a excellent uh, social orator uh, Pablo Neruda. Were you aware of Pablo Neruda? I'm
2: familiar with the works of Pablo Neruda
0: Me too. I wasn't at all. I just knew the name. He's a famous poet he was also a prominent member of the Communist Party in Chile. And this is what this film's all about. So this is directed by Pablo Lorraine. It's his third UK release in about six months. I think he made this before Jackie, but they just keep on, I don't know, stacked, released or, or whatever.
2: When it Lorraine's, it pours. I'm, I said that earlier, but off mic, and I wanted to rec- <laughs> want it to be recorded.
0: Brilliant. And uh, this new one is directed by him and written by Gamiro Calderon, who wrote No, his other Chilean socialist movie. And in it, Luis Neco plays uh, Pablo Neruda, who was, as I said, this major figure in the Chilean Communist Party. And in 1948, he basically calls out the government in a totally badass way for being a bunch of fascist pigs, resulting in him becoming a fugitive. And the film chronicles the period of this where he was in hiding and all the while is being pursued by a police detective called Oscar Palacino, played by Gail Garcia Bernal. So despite not really knowing much about Pablo Neruda, I had certain expectations going into the movie because the other two Pablo Lorraine movies I've seen are Jackie, which is a biopic, and No, which is all about the socialist political movement in Chile. So I was like, so biopic about a socialist guy in Chile... Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. But it's a super inventive and much more fun and somehow both lighthearted and serious movie than I expected it to be. And it's a film which is about Pablo Neruda but also film sort of by Pablo Neruda and it feels because it's about a poet it kind of takes these massive artistic licenses in a way which is kind of thrilling and he's obviously such a creative larger-than-life figure that doing it by the numbers biopic wouldn't really be capturing the man and as opposed to Jackie which kind of had a similar thing of exploring the difference between the public and private life literally by juxtaposing scenes of Jackie Kennedy in these intimate moments and her on the massive world stage. Uh, This one kind of blends those moments and sometimes literalizes that idea in a way which is unashamedly fictitious. And this is most overtly done with Gael Garcia Bernal's character, who isn't based on a real person and is invented for the film, but also is sort of not real in the film itself. It's almost like a Tom (laughs) Starford character. And Gael Garcia Bernal gives us completely committed almost Inspector Cluso-esque performance (laughs) as a man who is, like, super pompous and hugely dedicated cop without it ever seeming, like, too far. He, like, judges it perfectly and it kind of encapsulates what's good about the movie in that it is somehow rooted and outlandish at the same time. And uh, I don't want to, like, oversell the movie as some sort of totally surreal, nuts film, but it does have these artistic liberties but doesn't compromise the integrity of the story but just enhances it. And so it's sort of, it's a movie about a poet which is poetic in the way poetry is made up but truthful. If That's not too lofty a thing to say. No, no, it makes makes sense. And for a large part of the movie, it becomes a sort of weird caper film between these two characters who very rarely meet. And they form this odd, slightly symbiotic relationship where they're like commenting on each other. And I still haven't really wrapped my head around what this was trying to accomplish, but it was just kind of thrilling because it was so weird and unconventional. And I think it's kind of making the point that political ambition and creative expression kind of spring from the same well. And it's all... These characters aren't that dissimilar, even though they're ideologically opposed. And why that works is because both the performance of Gail Garcia Bernal and Luis Necco are like brilliant. They kind of balance each other. Because otherwise, Gail Garcia Bernal's performance is so out there that it could easily topple the film but Neko is equally good and I didn't know anything about him he's like a comic actor most famously and he was apparently the David Brent in the chili in the office okay <laughs> <laughs> and I was like and yeah, and once I heard that I was like couldn't imagine Ricky Gervais doing a performance like this you know but he's brilliant because Pablo Neruda is like a fascinating guy and he's a great character in that he's very principled and totally uh he's like a womanizer and a hard drinker and total like party guy as they all are as these men are aren't they with their ideals but he invests it with this real strain of melancholy and it's this like idealist who is like you know made a decision to stick by his ideals but his life is definitely getting shitter and like reality is definitely sort of facing him down Uh, but he refuses to be crushed by the system And there's this pleasing arc to the movie where the sort of exuberance and kind of sprawling nature of the film uh, gets a bit more focused towards its end and kind of very subtly makes the point that Chile's dark days are sort of in the future. And he kind of carries the weight of the nation with him. He's like he was in, he's sort of symbolic of something about Chile, and like him being driven out of Chile is sort of that movement dying. Yeah. And there's a few hints towards the future, like Pinochet's in it in a sort of slightly startling cameo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit strange because the only thing I know about ch- Chilean history is from Pablo Lorraine movies, so I'm familiar with like 1948 and 1988, like <laughs> and I'm not really sure what happened in between, there was like a key wasn't there or something.
2: Yeah, well he's probably going to make a few more films that will fill in the gaps for you.
0: Yeah, so I'd re-recommend it, it's a lot of fun, it's not too hard work, I felt like I learned a bit about history and it was all done with loads of jokes and a sort of almost Blake Edwards Inspector Clouseau style plot I wasn't really inspecting. I wasn't really inspecting I wasn't inspecting it. I wasn't inspecting it. But I wasn't expecting it either. <laughs> and now I've inspected it. And I would expect it if I watch it again, which I would happily do. Whew. Seamless wrapper.
2: <laughs> Sounds great. Let me check it out. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends
0: and the terrorists
2: try to stop her but she beats them in the end All right so Ghost in the Shell is probably the big blockbuster that came out too last week This two is
0: about a sort of principles
2: Yes this it was woman. almost identical to the two previous films and the comparisons hardly need to be drawn so it is an adaptation of a 1995 anime film, very influential, very influential on films like The Matrix uh, and part of the strain of cyberpunk that was kind of taking off in the, the 90s um, in cinema on the back of its sort of literary origins, the 70s and 80s. And that film itself was adapted from a manga. So there's a sort of rich history of lore and stuff that was pared down into this rather cerebral and enigmatic movie in 1995 and has now been turned into a gigantic Hollywood blockbuster which has seen a bit of controversy I think we've talked about it before in that it's Scully Hansen is cast in a lead it's obviously Japanese property and there was accusations of whitewashing rather reasonably and understandably and those are not necessarily helped by having a bunch of other white characters randomly in the film including Michael Pitt and Juliette Binoche but it also features Beat Takeshi Takeshi Kitane oh cool and it's directed by Rupert Sanders, who previously directed Snow White and the Huntsman, but you may be more familiar with him as the source of the very exciting gossip from 2012 when Kristen Stewart cheated on our pats, and it was with him.
0: Don't remind me, man. It was, uh, it was a hard time for us toy hearts.
2: It was. It was a very difficult time. So I think trampire. There's, I trampire. Well, this film has been a bomb, and that might be why. People, yes. people don't want to see this trampires movie. <laughs> so um, anyway, here's a clip from the film. It is a sequence in the movie when Scarlett Hansen, who is a kind of cyborg, entirely cyborg person with a human brain, the first of her kind, they've never done a cyborg quite that crazy before. Yeah, and Robocop. She's a total Robocop, almost identical to that. And she is doing what they refer to in an odd bit of corporate terminology, a deep dive into another malfunctioning droid to try to find a hacker who's been fucking some shit up. To do a deep dive. I have to get inside her memory. Consent required for data download.
0: I give my consent.
2: So it has got a pretty negative reception from the critics and from audiences who didn't go to see it. And having watched it myself, I can understand why, as it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, I saw I saw the anime last week, or like the week before, so that was sort of rather fresh in my mind that I was able to... It was kind of good in a way because I could compare them sure. so so directly. And it is basically a sort of textbook example of like the Hollywood hack remake, particularly in terms of the script. And it really feels like a script by the most kind of day rate sort of Hollywood screenwriter jerks every single line is either here's what my character is or here is the how to move the plot forwards and the original film is they obviously have so much material to draw on from the manga but they chose to make a film which does not hammer plot at you all the time everything is kind of kept at a bit of a distance and it's a bit enigmatic and mysterious and it obviously references things that probably make tons of sense if you've read thousand mangas but you know you don't really understand what's going on but hollywood big movies like this cannot cope with that level of uncertainty so it's constantly having to stop to explain shit to you and it fills the gaps because like if it just explained everything the movie wouldn't be as long so they have to like fill things with extra plot and extra details and extra concepts that are just totally superfluous but it just takes time to tell you about them And there's, like, all these extra sequences because there's all this extra plot to get through. And it feels very much, like, rote. It has the feel, in terms of the way that the plot plays out and the story, of a kind of mid-season episode of CSI cyberpunk, you know? (laughs) where no one really gives a shit. It's all just churned out. And it's an odd contrast with the way the film is directed and the arts of the film because the direction is not done like that. It's very carefully directed with a lot of poise, and some of the imagery is quite spectacular, and it's been designed completely out the wazoo. And the concept of the design is not anything you haven't really seen before, except just taken to the nth degree. It looks a little bit like Blade Runner. You know, it's like rainy future, where everything is adverts. Giant skyscrapers and adverts. His
0: background is in advertising and music videos, I believe. yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. He is a music video guy. Colonel Saunders. Music video ag- by, advert guy. But uh so it's like that vision of a dystopia, a kind of functioning but over-corporatized, over-commercialized dystopia is quite unfamiliar. But it's uh, rendered in a very spectacular way. And it's a particularly high level of, like, the world being suffused with adverts everywhere. And it just feels like everyone has put a lot more care into that aspect of the movie than they did into, like, the story, the way things play out. So... It was a bit of an odd experience watching in a way because I could not have given less of a shit about what was going to happen to the characters. <laughs> but around the corner, there would always be some rather stunning new image or you know, some interesting looking sequence. The thing that kind of undercuts that as well is the fact that it feels rushed and the movie is very lean. It's like 90 minutes long and it feels a bit like some producers saw an earlier longer cut of the film, felt like people weren't going to like it and decided to make it short so that it would at least be pacey and entertaining and maybe that was a good decision but it means that all of the the atmosphere that the shots themselves are trying to evoke is undercut by the fact that the movie is hurrying through everything It's just getting from a to b and none of the things have a chance to kind of land and settle on you because it's just like rushed on to the next thing and none of the moments feel like they were kind of earned even though they probably wouldn't be anyway you know because it kind of sucks B. Takeshi is remarkably good in it, considering he is given nothing by the script or by the plot. He's brilliant. But he's got an incredible amount of presence. And every time he's on the screen, the movie is kind of elevated because I just want to see what he's going to do. And I thoroughly enjoyed him in it. There's quite a cool thing that he, he only speaks Japanese and no one speaks Japanese to him, but <laughs> they just understand each other because it's the future or something. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's a bit... It's a slightly sad experience because the original movie is obviously built around the central what theme that it's trying to explore this idea about the interface between technology and identity and it's all this kind of exploration of this weird foreign future and this odd foreign character this person who is a robot and a human at the same time and as an audience watching the movie you don't really understand her and what her motivations are and what she's feeling and then it kind of gradually unfolds throughout the film and that and then it sort of goes in like a odd direction at the end that you're not necessarily expecting. And it's got that kind of sense of oddness and like richness that you get in a lot of kind of Asian cinema. And it's kinda sad to see that all completely stripped away. No one is coming out of this movie scratching their heads. And no one is thinking, Well wow, it's really got something to say, you know? It's they've somehow managed to utterly expunge every trace (laughs) of like thematic depth from
0: it. They've gotten rid of the ghost in the shell. It's just the shell. It's just the sh- yes, Yo!
2: yes. The soul has been destroyed. And only the shells left. And there's also this this cool kind of like interrogation of gender aspect to the original movie as well. And you can read into it stuff about female objectification. Also, um, even though it's quite the she's basically the main character in the original anime is naked a lot of the time, and the female body is really fetishized in a kind of mangry way. But it's also in, you know, you can read it as a as a comment on the commodification of women's bodies because of how it's treated in the movie, and that whole thing is gone as well. It's just it's been killed, and for no reason, like for no reason that I can see. Like the bad guy in the original movie, the nominal bad guy is this kind of androgynous AI hacker thing, and here it's just like Michael Pitt, you know. There's he, he's a man, and that whole aspect to it is lost.
0: He's definitely a man
2: he's a man hes I've checked him I've looked him over up and down and he is a man Say, so, yeah say so I kind of sucked and you probably weren't going to say it anyway like most people didn't uh, but you don't have to
0: yeah I might rewatch the anime though I'm sure yeah but actually
2: it. now is a great time to rewatch the anime because um, it's a good movie
0: when Zach Graff heard something that changed his life
2: what he listened to when John Cusack made a mistake for his future wife what did she listen to and when Michael Madsen cut a guy's Ross, what was he dancing to? Phil and when Tim Robbins showed Shaw that he had enough, which record did he choose?
1: Yeah 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 yeah.
0: One of the biggest releases this summer is of course Transformers 5, The Last Night. The last night which looks pretty much like the same old ship uh robots and that
2: but it with slightly more weird trailers
0: weirder trailers well, well these are weird times things are just getting weirder. these things are, people are strange these days <laughs> <laughs> and while doing a bit of press for the movie i guess the press is sort of gearing up michael bay said he'd be up for directing another one despite threatening or promising to retire previously and he let slip that there are 14 Transformers stories written. And this is sort of adding to a story that was last year that the guys who own Transformers, Hasbro. Hasbro slash, the Hasbros. The Hasbros. And who's the company that owns it? Sony, I don't know. Well, DreamWorks or somebody. One of the big, massive corporations have just hired a writer's room, like as a TV show. And they just want to squeeze this franchise for all it's worth. Starting next year with a spin-off Bumblebee movie, Bumblebee being the best Transformer. He's the best one. Who wants to see a Bumblebee? Well, he's movie? a nice. He's a bright yellow color. Apparently, it's going to be a prequel. I don't know how the hell that's going to work. It's going to be good. But um, so fourteen Transformers movies. That's quite a lot. That is a lot. I'm just wondering that in the future, the only films made will be either a Transformers movie or a comic book movie it'll be these umbrellas <laughs> and underneath them will be the other genres in the way that marvel sort of like ant-man was like a heist movie but it's a comic book heist movie and oh i see what you mean yeah uh winter soldier was like a conspiracy thriller that wasn't really and like so in the future if you want to see like a woody allen rom-com it'll just have that robot. It. it'll be transformers transformers yeah Annie Hall.
2: you want to see michael haneke's next movie about the like soulless french bourgeois <laughs> It's, it's a Transformers film, Transformers, sorry. Maybe. It's got robots in it.
0: But, you know, how are they going to... Because the Transformers movies are pretty similar. Unlike Marvel, they haven't really varied it up.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the central like framework of superheroes can be bent. It's quite elastic, you know. You yeah. can do all sorts of things with it. Giant robots to transform into cars? I don't know. Seems pretty limited.
0: I was thinking the way direction to take it, because I don't know if you saw Transformers 2 Revenge of the Fallen, but there was a scene where a sexy lady is seducing Shia, and he's like, Oh, no, 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 man, I've I my no, girlfriend. No 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 no, 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 Turns out, uh, and then there's a shot of, like, her bum, and, like, a big sort of robot tail comes out. She's you a fembot. See, you see a bit of she, her, She's a fembot, uh, like, from Austin Powers. Yeah, she's a fembot. Yeah. So if the Transformers can impersonate people, surely the way to go would be invasion of the, of the body snatchers. I was thinking it sounds like paranoid. Transformers star Galacticon. Well, same diff, right? Just um, they infiltrated us. But the thing is, it's not like who you can trust. It's what can you trust. Even
2: you- your fridge and your pencil sharpeners <laughs> yeah, are Transformers. You
0: run away from the bad guys. You get into your house. Your house is a Transformer. It's a Transformer. <laughs> <laughs> you get into your car. Shit. It's a Transformer.
2: That's, I mean, the, the the revelations won't stop. The number of twists that this film can have is, is limitless.
0: Well, like, yeah, that's the thing. Like if, if humans can be Transformers, that's everything, right? It's not like, oh, you're just going to this wooden boat. There's nothing metal but That'll yet. be the
2: thing in the movie, right? It'll be like, only dogs. They can only not do dogs. So like, they can transform into anything, but they can't. They haven't worked out dogs because their paws look wrong or something. So it'll be about Mark Wahlberg and he can only trust dogs.
0: <laughs> and there's a bit where he looks at one of their paws when their paws are really big. It's really big,
2: and it's made of metal, and he's like, that doesn't look right. It's not right, man. Sorry, that, that paw th- looks kind of weird, man. That
0: dog's paws are really, really, dog's really big. dog's paws
2: really big and metal, man. I don't think it's a real dog.
0: It's it's, it's a paws? Transformer. Got a man. You
2: know what that would be good for? Is it a reprise of his performance in the happening where he talks to
1: the plant? Hello? My name is Elliot Moore. I'm just going to talk in a very positive manner. Giving off good vibes. We're just here to use the bathroom. then we're just gonna leave. I hope that's okay.
2: Okay, like okay, I just yeah. don't destroy my planet, man. Uh, I the we don't need to be at war with the humans. Just chill out. I can't believe I'm talking to a plant. I'd be like that. I think we are good. What if like if it turns out like the entire city of Singapore is a Transformer and always has been? And Mark Wahlberg, he's hired to work at a company in Singapore, and he's like, "Thank God I'm getting away from the Transformers. I'm so sick of Transformers." and he moves over there and he doesn't want to do any of that transformer stuff anymore he just wants to settle down and raise his children and then the whole city turns into a robot <laughs> <laughs> and he's living inside it and he's got to find his way out sounds great, great that's a great idea yeah I
1: would,
0: well, how does that get <laughs> resolved
2: <laughs> how does it get resolved it just settles down it, it, it moves to the moon <laughs> and settles down and he runs the <laughs> <Sorry>. mi-
0: <laughs> so he said that like as the demonstration like, I think it resolved S- settles down da- down like
2: like all like all things that kick up it just eventually just sort of settles down <laughs> <laughs> like in most action films when the trouble just kind of you know it's simmering away and then it just, it just sort of sorts itself it out it just sorts of sort <laughs> itself out
0: <laughs>
2: the best resolution for for films yeah yeah that's the thing. They've got to get us in this writer's room. We've got, we're have got we full of ideas. Because all their ideas are going to be, what if it had a giant sword? Or, you know, what if it was uh, as big as the sun or something? It's just going to be boring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that transform as big as the sun.
2: <laughs> wow. Uh, right, have we chatted enough shit about that? <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: have chatted enough shit about that. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, we'll be reviewing The Handmaiden, the new film by Park Chan-wook, and I want to see Raw. I want to see Raw. I want to see Raw. Let's see Raw Man. Let's go see Raw Man. Let's You're see it together, man. see Raw. <laughs> What's that? How that Perry song go? Like that. See me Raw. Yeah,
2: that's what will happen. See you then, guys. Bye. Bye.
0: I used to bite my tongue and hold my breath Scared to rock the boat and make a mess So I say quietly Agreed politely I guess I forgot that I had a choice I let you push me past the breaking point I stood for nothing So I fell for everything Held me down But I got up Already brought the dust You hear my voice You hear that sound like finally gonna shake the ground. You held me down, but I got up. Get ready, cause I had enough. See it all, I see it now. I got the eye of the tiger, a fighter, dancing through the fire, as I am a champion, and you're gonna hear me roll out! Champion. And you're gonna hear me roar. Oh-oh-oh-oh-oh-oh. Oh-oh-oh-oh-oh-oh. oh gonna hear me roar. oh oh oh, 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 oh. Rub, bleh, bleh. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.